and we're live. Oh my god, celebrate good times. Okay. Hello everyone. It is my pleasure to bring Typed Out to you in this new audio format. Throughout the podcast, I will be speaking with various guests about the importance of representation and how their individual experience has shaped the work they do. Of course, as is true to the platform, we will also depart from the slightly heavier subjects to bring you something fun and uplifting as well. And should you have an idea for a podcast or would like to be featured, please feel free to send us an email at typedoutco at gmail.com. Again, that is typedoutco at gmail.com. Or you can jump on over to our website, www.typedout.co, and submit an email via the contact form. As always, we welcome your feedback. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to your official launch of the Typed Out Podcast. I'm your host and creator, Nick Palafrone. And in today's episode, Nano Homo, we are discussing the representation of queer characters in niche genre literature. Joining me today is Miss Courtney Antonioli. Courtney, welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, Nano Homo is actually a play on words for Nano Rimo. And, Court, can you please explain to everyone what Nano Rimo is? It is when an author undertakes the task of writing 50,000 words in the month of November. Yes, which is also known as National Novel Writing Month. So throughout this month, from the 1st through the 30th, authors across the nation are crunching at their desk to finish their manuscript, which at some point... uh, Except for today. Except for today, yes, because it is... It is November 6th. Which means midterm election day. Yes, so they have to stop writing, go vote. Go back to the desk. Start writing. And start writing again. Court, did you vote? I did vote. Good. Absolutely. Did you? Of course I did. Did you hear our podcast last week about voting with Motivote? They provide opportunities for people to vote. Make plans, actions, executable. Get it done. And also, if you need a ride from where you are, let's say at your desk writing your novel, if you need a lift from where you are to your local poll, Uber and Lyft are providing rides. And I think complimentary, isn't that? Correct. I would have to I would have to Google that, which I should do. But um, jump onto your app, Uber or Lyft, and you can organize a ride to your local poll. Access is important. Access is important. But today, as it happens to be National Novel Writing Month, we're going to be speaking with Kellen Garrity and Jason Hess of Sarah Blue Publishing Company, which is based in South Africa. And we're going to be speaking with Jason about queer representation in niche genre literature, which include sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Can you please give us three examples of a sci-fi, a fantasy, and a horror novel, Miss Courtney? Novel? Could it be any form of literature? Oh yeah, it could be anything. What's what's your favorite sci-fi? X-Men. Are they sci-fi? Mm, kind of. I mean, no. Neil deGrasse Tyson will definitely say no, but I think of like Star oh, Trek. Oh no, you know I love Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek is a classic sci-fi. And then fantasy, everyone loves. Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Well, yes, I would say she's more horror. God, I'm not <laughs> nailing this. And when it comes to fantasy, everybody loves... Harry Potter. Harry Potter. I mean, it doesn't get any more fantasy than that. Or like Lord of the Rings. Who doesn't love Lord of the Rings? And when it comes to horror... Now Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So back in the day, everyone, Courtney and I, when we were sophomores in high school, because we both had an affinity for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, by the way, I recently started rewatching. 
Thank you, Netflix. Thank you. Uh, Hulu. Hulu. Yes, they pulled it off of Netflix and put it on Hulu. Oh. How dare they, making me get two subscriptions. That is true. That's unfair. And I heard that they're going to be doing a Buffy reboot. So you think that's real? I think it's real. But my thing is, like, if they do bring back Buffy, I don't want... What I want them to do is it to be a continuation of the original. So building off of what has already happened. Oh. And I was talking with friends about this, and I was like... It would be so cool if they brought Buffy back to be the watcher of the new Slayer. It would add so many complex levels to her because it's like she's already done the job. And she didn't love authority that much in the beginning. No. And now she would have to come back as the authority figure. And what else would it bring to it? For me, it would show the representation, we're talking about representation, Yes. of women in power. Yes. And being a mentor and the dynamic of having like transition from being the Slayer to the watcher. That's That brings up a lot of emotions that... Frankly, outside of just a woman worrying about a man, there's real things, real life yeah. in there. And it would also be great to show, again, the dynamic between two women working together. And Which then, happens every day. Every day. And then also, are you familiar with the Bechdel test? I am. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? It is in a film when two female characters have a conversation with one another and they're not discussing relationships around men, like romantic relationships. Yeah. Because there's a huge history where two women are speaking across from one another and it's like how often are they talking about a man as the source of a problem too often too too often so it would be great if we had a tv show like this new buffy reboot where it passed the bechdel test 10 out of 10 times or maybe like 9 out of 10 because i'm sure we'll have like another xander like character in there times yeah 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 so the other cool thing that we talk about um, in this episode with Kellen and Jason is that Comic-Con for the very first time comes to Africa. Now, Court, I know that you, like me, are a huge Comic-Con fan. Went this year. Same. I've been going as many years as my pocket can afford it. Same. Since high school. As many as we can. I've never been able to make it out to California. That's expensive for me. And I didn't know that there was no Comic-Cons outside of the United States. I mean, I think there's like a UK. I think that's also fairly recent, but but again, it's... I have to ask, what, what draws you to Comic-Con? Because I know what brings me there. Like, what are the most exciting things about, about the convention weekend? Being with my people. Yes. I do go and cosplay. This year, I was Janet from The Good Place. Amazing. I was both good Janet and bad Janet. Uh, very into The Good Place. It's, it is being around individuals who have the same feelings towards fandom, towards like magical realism, towards comic books, towards the things that were very important to me during my growing up and being nobody judges you nobody looks at you weird nobody questions it they just they get it because they're also doing the same thing you're doing and you do not find that in ordinary circumstances every day no maybe now when people wear like pins are very big and you might see somebody like wearing like a quirky marvel pin or somebody wearing a harry potter or any any pin that is related to kind of not mainstream pop culture though i suppose harry potter's mainstream now but i'm thinking more maybe comic books yeah that you can just make eye contact and get each other but at comic-con we're we're talking we're hanging out we're taking photos you're having commonalities like everybody is there for a shared love and there's 
There's no outcasts. Yeah. And I, I really feel like these are my people. The thing that I love about Comic-Con is it feels like it's where the social outcasts come together and unite. Anyone can truly be anybody there, you know? You can't. And I went, you know, for example, last year, because I'm a big Twin Peaks fan, I went as Dale Cooper. Mm-hmm. And nobody blinks if you're going, you know, you're subverting gender or you're gender neutral. Like you can be any kind of a version. You know, you don't have to be like, the the female version of that character that is represented on television no you can turn it into whatever you want and that's okay right and people are high-fiving you for it and be like oh my god that's so awesome or you saw it in a different type of way or like i never thought of it that way and it really opens up worlds of possibilities yes and there's just there's no boundaries the boundaries are only the limitations that you set on it what did you dress up i sure did i cosplayed on saturday so my friend Mandy and I went and we were um, characters from Hunter Hunter, which is an anime, also manga, if, if anyone is familiar. I dressed up as Crollo Lucille for, um, and my friend Mandy was Killua. So if, if you're familiar. You've always been great with you. the costumes. You, you know how to put makeup on Thank that you. I have no skills at whatsoever. <laughs> I need ones that are just specifically costume based. Yeah. If, if you require face paint, you're not my cosplay. Cosplay is a real thing. Like it is a real challenge. Like you step up to the challenge in the way that you are making your own costume and trying to replicate that character or, or deviating, as you mentioned, Court, from that character in such a creative way. So these are also costumes that generally don't pre-exist so you really have to get resourceful with them i love to see what people can do yeah with a little fabric a little paint and a sewing needle and like something like just crazy like turning cardboard into these beautiful like pieces of art i know and like also mad respect to anybody who does something that is larger than just putting on like a trench coat and a pair of pants or some shoes because that place is packed and they're maneuvering and it takes some grace yes. to walk through there like full on like halo outfit or full on Vader or Stormtrooper like mad props to you because I am all about comfort in some ways. But people go big months of dedication. People are already probably planning. Yeah. Like while you're standing in line waiting to vote, you're just like, what am I going to be for 2019 Comic-Con? Or... If you're around this month, we're going to be at Anime NYC, which will be the 16th, 17th, and 18th, and Typed Out will be there. We'll be interviewing folks, and we'll also be in cosplay. So Ooh. come check us out. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I think this is a good opportunity to jump into our interview with Kellen Garrity of Sarah Blue, and also joining her today, Jason Hess. All right, let's jump to it. Helen, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. Well, me and us. Yes. And, and also on the line with us is Jason Hess, who is one of the authors under Sarah Blue. Kellen, please tell me about Sarah Blue and the impetus to start it. Okay, so uh, Sarah Blue is a niche genre publishing company that I started in 2016. And the reason why I started it is because I have written a series and I was having a really hard time getting it published in South Africa. It was fantasy, so it was genre fiction, and a lot of uh, publishing companies here in South Africa specifically say um, on their on their email, on their submissions page, that they do not accept 
um, the following genres, which was fantasy, sci-fi, horror. Um, there, there was a list, but it, it was a lot of the things that, that I was writing and a lot of the things that I knew that a lot of my friends were writing. And I was just blown away by the fact that they were not accepting these manuscripts. And, um, it, it kind of hit really hard when I found out that uh, Game of Thrones was bought into South Africa by one of our South African publishing companies that explicitly was not accepting manuscripts from South African authors. So they were more than happy to bring fantasy um, internationally into our country, but they were not looking at our country as having any talent or anything to offer and I just I got really upset and I, I started Sarah Blue and I said well here I am like we're 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 gonna take it on and and see where it goes and um, prove them wrong that there are writers writing this and there are readers who want to hear from South Africans not just the international talent yeah that's crazy that's I mean talk about adopting something and just seeing it for the money factor you know and not looking at the people and the talent within your own country to to sort of be that voice and generate you know fill that space in a way that is representative on a national level it, it was it was actually like a bit disheartening it, it was kind of like no one had trust in in the talent that we could <laughs> we could bring to the table. It, I don't know what the reason is for it. They they state that there isn't a readership for it, but I mean, um, Comic-Con was brought into South Africa um, for the first time ever. So they, they can't keep telling us that there isn't this market or readership or, or need or want for it because yeah. it, it keeps coming up. This is the Comic-Con that is sponsored by Repop, which is, they're responsible for San Diego Comic-Con, for New York Comic-Con. It's sort of the big factory behind your larger comic conventions. With Sarah Blue being there, and I know that you had been hosting panels or appearing on panels and also probably having some sort of a vendor table for Sarah Blue. Did you see in the turnout the the folks that would be the audience for sci-fi, for fantasy, for horror? Have you seen reflected at Comic-Con the audience that you felt was lacking or ignored beforehand? Definitely, definitely. Um, so just just to clarify and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason, I believe that Comic-Con has, this was the first year that they've been in the entirety of Africa, not just South Africa. So this was their, their first event here and they were sold out like a month before the actual event. And the event was, um, if I believe it went from the 13th of September to the 16th of September. So it was the Friday, the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, we had panels across all three days. We, Jason and I actually had a panel on the Friday and that, that centered around Jason and his book and horror. And then on the Saturday and the Sunday, it was um, writing panels around world building and character development. And pretty much over all three days, our, 
auditorium was was full. And on over the weekend, we were situated in the biggest auditorium that they could give us, and we were still pretty much full across across the entire weekend, as well as um, as you said, we did actually have a stall in the in the artist alley, and we sold over a hundred books, and we had several hundred people come and talk to us, and not just me as as uh, Kellen Garrity or as Sarah Blue, but people who came to talk to Jason and to the other authors that we've that we've published because we've got we've got quite a few of them um, who were speaking at the panels as well. There were actually six of us, and people kept coming to talk to us and. Occasionally, I still have the authors say, "Oh, I went and I I bought a cool drink at this place," and somebody said, "Hey, you were you were on that panel at Comic Con." So the the reach like a month later hasn't died, or people are still saying, "I saw your I saw your event, and it was so cool that that you guys are doing this thing because they themselves hadn't heard of anything like this before." Mm-hmm. And I think that um, if this is something that you're serious about, and um, this this might step on some people's toes because a lot of people like the idea of they're a writer or they're going to write and they sit at home and they write. Um, but it's a very different different thing from actively pursuing writing. And when you when you actively pursue it, you you kind of claw your way through the trenches and you you find all of these these avenues and these things that that kind of get your writing going. But if you're not clawing through that, if you're if you're just writing and I don't want to say hoping, but it, it kind of is. A lot of people don't know where to go. Mm. And um a lot of people went to Comic Con not expecting to find us there, and when they did, they were they were surprised because we've as we've spoken there there isn't this this space for us in South Africa this 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 space that we can yell and scream at each other and say oh you're a writer come we're here you know we're still we're still kind of having to to knock down all the walls and and find our people so a lot of people came to Comic Con not knowing that they would find us there and and were surprised and relieved to find us. We just had New York Comic Con a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Comic Con is like my favorite time of the year. Like it is the one weekend since moving to New York is the thing that I live for because it's, I just love the vibe of it. How many different people come together and yet you feel so alike. I mean, I feel like I just live for this one weekend to unleash my nerd and find other people that will nerd out and respect the things that I, as a grown 30-year-old man, have love for, you know? (laughs) But it's just, to me, there's a level of magic to it because it's like you connect in a way that you have found something that speaks to you and you find other folks who have found that same thing and you share that that identity you know and you can speak to it in a way that is like mutual respect for one another comic-con was amazing i i i was expecting big things and it just kind of blew me out of the water um it it felt like you can you instantly connect with the people that are there and as you said even though everybody's different and um you have your different passions and your your different geekdoms and fandoms and whatever. You you just kind of still feel like like this is your family. These are your people. This is this is where where you're supposed to be. Yeah, it, it was amazing. 
Yeah. The thing I love about Comic-Con is, like, anybody can be anybody here, you know? Yeah. Like, the, the pressures of society don't seem to exist in that space for, like, those three or those four days that it's happening. It's like, you can be anyone. You can do anything. Really is inspiring and and magical in that way. Uh, it, was, so. it was it was a blast. I, I think that I forgive me if I'm wrong, Jason, but speaking for all six of the authors that I took along with me, we we had the best time. Oh, absolutely. Good. Well, hopefully this is only the start of many years for for coming. Yeah, they 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 invited us back next year because oh, they, they got a yeah they got a really good response. Uh, I think that they've been holding um, I don't know like surveys and stuff, and they got a really positive response from from people who attended and people who saw our, our panels and enjoyed our work and our books and our talks. And yeah, they invited us back. <laughs> Great. And speaking of your books, Kellen, I know that you you started with uh, Crimson Skies, which is the first entry in the Eon series. Is that correct? Yes. So yes. please tell us a little bit about, about your writing. Uh, the Eon series takes place in the same universe. Um but every single book that I've written is a standalone. So you can read the books in any order. You could start with the third book, the fifth book, the seventh book, and it, it's not going to, to mean anything to you or change anything for you. Um, and that's that's kind of what I wanted. I didn't want people to feel like they had to read the first book or, you know, carry on buying the series after they they kind of stop feeling some attachment for a particular character. I I wanted them to know that every time that they bought one of my books, they were getting a complete story. But that said, across across all of the books, there are parts of the, the stories, the characters, the world that that's overlaps and I, I call those Easter eggs. So if you if you read one of the books and you you know you read the next one you might recognize a character or a location or a something. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that you have to read any of the other ones. It's just if you had, you, you kind of get that little bit extra. That's the idea behind it. We'll, we'll see how it works out. So I've, I've actually written three books, but I've only published the first two. The third one will come out next year. So the first one is Crimson Skies, which is an escape story. It basically follows uh, four main characters that live in the desert. Basically, it does not rain unless somebody is killed. So these four people have been chosen as the next sacrifices to die, but instead of staying and dying and fulfilling their duty, they decide to try and escape through the canyon. But the canyon is dangerous. It's full of demons and monsters and things that want to kill and eat them. Um, but if they stay home, they're definitely going to die. So it's it's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, and they they try and make that escape through the canyon. Then I wrote Into the Dark, which is the second book, which uh, this book follows orcs and fairies on two separate timelines and uh, there's part one which tells you the story of the orcs and their how they created the desert how they created the canyon and how they started taking over the the mainland and the story of the fairies who are oblivious to all of 
all of this happening until eventually their their stories kind of meet in the middle somewhere and you obviously then have their their climax their how they're going to resolve the fact that one is entirely destructive and the other one is um gosh kind of a little careless as well but not entirely destructive do each of the stories sort of take on a different theme i suppose but then they can all be uh tied into the same universe um so i'm not sure that they necessarily have a different theme uh, if i if i read break it down all of them kind of have the theme that there is no there's no good there's no bad there's no winning and there's still hope (laughs) it's a bit complicated i kind of want people to to be surprised when they read it like uh i know that a lot of people said that they were quite surprised with crimson skies and i'm not i'm not going to give away too much but a lot of people are like, I didn't think that that could get any worse. And then I, I flipped to the next chapter and it got worse. And it kept doing that until the end. And by the end, I, I didn't feel completely shattered, which is, you know, not, not always the way that these, these stories go, um, which is what I wanted. I wanted everything to get worse and get worse and get worse and not to leave you feeling horrible, at least. So far, the feedback I've gotten is that people didn't feel horrible. I don't know, Jason. Is it horrible? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to bring it up now um, because people will be listening and then they'll want to read Crimson Skies and that kind of thing. So I won't give away anything. But you know, there is that one scene that I love a lot that is quite gory and gruesome. And I must say it was very unexpected coming from you. But it made me feel good. I, I felt like Crimson Skies at the end, it ended on a very good note. And I think that's what's great about, you know, books that are, you know, like a lot of tragedy happens in them and that kind of thing. I mean, you, you go through a wave of emotions and, and then, you know, good kind of tragedies kind of end on a, on a very hopeful note. And I feel like that's what Crimson Skies did. Oh, that's exactly what I wanted. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I, I actually get, I actually get that a lot. That the people are like, I can't believe you wrote that. You're so cute and fluffy. How can you write that gory, horrible stuff? <laughs> uh, but I, I, I get that with you too, Jason. Like every now and then, I'm like, I can't believe you wrote that one scene, Jason. <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't believe I write half the stuff I do. Jeez. I was going to say, I feel like as writers, you get that whole thing of like, you can only write within the the scope of your personality, like as people know you, and they don't consider that the scope of your imagination could be greater, you know, that it's like, just because I'm a pleasant person to speak with, or I might be shy, or, you know, I might be reserved in certain social situations doesn't mean that I lack the capacity to dream or think of the darker things or like that even how much of our own universe the one that we live in the world that we live in you hear horror stories that aren't fictional every day and how much of that can be woven into the tale that you're telling you know and it's not so much about the person and what the person generates but what is possible with you know within the realm of reality Oh, exactly. I, I've had people after reading Crimson Skies say, like, how fucked up was your childhood? And I'm like, actually, it was lovely. I, I just have a good imagination. Yeah. That, that's all. My gosh. I remember in my my senior year in uh, in undergrad, 
I had written a story about a character who contemplates killing his father. Now, the inspiration for this came from one line of dialogue in a movie that I had seen. And I was like, wow, they didn't investigate that. That is really curious to me. So I wrote a, a short story about it and it wound up getting published in like our, um, our chronicle at school. But it definitely had that thing where, like, my parents sat me down or, like, my teachers came to me and they were like, uh, is everything okay? Like, do you have, you know, issues with your father? And I was like, it is just a story. Like, it's just a story. <laughs> like, I don't have any daddy issues that I, you know, am contemplating trying to murder him or anything. I was like, it's it's just a story, you know? Oh, exactly. So I I, I kind of get that quite a lot where people don't associate my cute fluffy bubbliness with having written this this dark fantasy um so yeah that's that's crimson skies and then <laughs> into the dark and then the third book which comes out next year is elements of night and it's kind of keeping with the with the same general theme of it, it's a little bit messed up and it's a little bit rough um but I, I kind of hope that it ends on a on a note that's that's a little bit hopeful. Like you, at the end of it, you kind of hope that things get better. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the general idea for the series. And the other thing, Kellen, that I love is that not only did you create Sarah Blue as a vessel for your own work, but to also bring on other authors like Jason to have a platform to publish their work as well. Yeah, I like. Uh, I mean, writing was, was my thing from back in high school. So I kind of ended up with friends who wrote as well. And I knew that their struggle was my struggle. And um, in having created Sarah Blue, I very quickly had an influx of, of people that I knew were like, well, now that you have this thing. And so that kind of, that kind of really helped um, because a number of, of, uh, friends, I've I've helped their dreams come true. I've published their books, and then you get people like Jason, who who actually won a publishing um, contract with Sarah Blue. I didn't know him at all before, and um, and now we're friends, and it just feels like like I don't know. Sarah Sarah Blue has just extended my circle, and and made my life better in every way and like brought all of the all of the really amazing talented positive like go-getter people into my life and it's it's as much as I've had people say that like you've given me the space or this opportunity or this something they've they've given me all of that back 10 times yeah that's amazing I get all emotional. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I love is seeing when someone not only creates a space for themselves, but creates a space for others, you know, because it truly does come down to inclusion. You know, it's, it's about, to me, it's about what you can do for others, not only like you, but also unlike you as well, you know, where it's seeing the need for voices to exist, especially if you're walking into your local bookstore and you can't even find South African authors on a sci-fi shelf or a fantasy shelf, or they're just lumped all together. And it's like, you specifically need to know what you're looking for in order to find somebody's work. Just to expand on, um, 
Jason a bit. Uh, he actually won a competition that I was holding where if you bought a, a copy of Crimson Skies, you were able to send us through a manuscript. And I must have had about 80 people who bought Crimson Skies with that idea in mind. And about half of that actually ended up submitting a manuscript within the time period. Um, and uh, reading through them and going through them, I, I narrowed it down to kind of like a top nine, I think it was, or a top eight. And then I, I narrowed it down again and again until eventually I, um, I picked out, uh, Jason's story. And that's how Jason joined the Sarah Blue family. I love that. Well, congrats, Jason, on having an excellent manuscript. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So I'm totally just going to pivot right off of that. And, and Jason, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself and also the manuscript that you submitted to, to Kellen and Sarah Blue? Well, yeah, I did my master's in creative writing at the University of Witwatersrand. And that is where I wrote the original manuscript uh, for Our Immaculate. And um, I was very, very privileged to work with amazing supervisors who had given really great feedback, amazing uh, students who were also in the class with me, um, two of which were also writing speculative fiction pieces, one a, um, a dystopian fantasy, the other a cyberpunk in South Africa. And... Um, yeah, at the end of that, I just figured I would, you know, publish straight away and become rich and famous. And in two years, you know, there would be a movie, you know, based on my book and that kind of thing. Of course. And it turns out, I was, yeah, I mean, but like it turns out real life is not as, um, <laughs> not as simple. What? And so I figured, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> but then um, I figured, you know what, I would just um, give the... The, the rising dream arrest and kind of focus on uh, advertising because then I went into an advertising career after that as a copywriter. And then the one day, two friends of mine and I, we went to this uh, geek convention, which is held outdoors on a field called Geek Fest. And that was where I saw the Sarah Blue stand. And I figured, you know what? I've gotten so many rejection letters already for Our Immaculate. What's one more? Let me enter this competition and, you know, submit my manuscript and then just, you know, be prepared for another rejection. Mm. And um, it was just really amazing. I'll never forget it that day, sitting in the office at around 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then getting this email from Kellen saying, we have a winner. And, of course, like I went, you know, I, I just, I went through a whole wave of emotions at that point. My art director turned to me and he was like, what is it? What's wrong? You know, thinking I had gone bad news. And I was like, I'm getting, I'm getting published. I'm sorry. I, I almost swore there for a second. Um, but I was like, I'm getting published. And then I went outside, called my parents. And I was like, you will not believe what is about, what, what's, what's going to happen. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, then I met Kellen uh, officially and, the rest is history. It's just, it's been a very beautiful partnership that the, the two of us have had. And she has just been so amazing. So, so incredible. She's everything anyone could ever ask for in a publisher and more. She is like the matriarch of the Sarah Blue community. And we all the authors are like a little children. And it's just, it's really wonderful. <laughs> it's really great. Um, 
But um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's quite you know, some Yeah, I I don't see you guys as the children. I see you guys as like you know equal. Just just so you know, you're not my kids. We're we're in this together. <laughs> no, you know we we see you as equal as well. But you're you're just so much wiser than us, and just so you're just so amazing. It's just it's hard not to look up to someone like you, Kellen. That's just a lot of pretending on my part. I I. <laughs> I will go and Google that question. You just asked me quick. <laughs> Jason, can you uh, tell us about um, Our Immaculate, please? Yeah, sure. So um, Our Immaculate is basically a mixture of my favorite horror genres, such as paranormal, slasher, Japanese survival horror, that kind of thing. And it's set in an all-girls school in the Michalisburg, which is somewhat of a mountain range just outside of Johannesburg here in South Africa. And um, it follows the lives of my two main characters, who you can find on the cover of my novel, which is illustrated by the incredible Gina Ray Proxy. And uh, it follows their lives over a period of 48 hours, as well as a third character who is the principal of our Immaculate Academy, the school where it takes place. Uh, whose story spans roughly 40 years or so. And um, my book basically deals with the occult, creepy nuns, cosmic terror, and a primeval entity known as the boy with the red feet. All the good things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you said that so well, Jason. Oh, I, I actually need to, practice, I need to practice saying my stuff as well as you do. But that was brilliant. <laughs> He's got that pitch down. Like, yes, he does. You're ready I, to, you know, jump in an elevator and deliver it. Oh, thank but you, you know so what? much. He's Nick. actually had he's had a number of podcasts and panels just talking about our immaculate. So, so to be fair, he's had a lot of practice. <laughs> True, I've been very blessed. I, I must say, I've been very, very blessed with the attention our immaculate has gotten. In the same vein of like when you were at Comic Con and, and seeing the collective of people that are interested in, you know, the sci-fi, the fantasy, the horror, the same way that we had practiced earlier in the in the episode. Did you see the same thing, Jason, with the queer following by chance? Like, have, have people noticed your work as a queer author? You know, yes and no. And um, there's been more of a queer following outside of Comic-Con, mm. uh, where I have received messages from people on Facebook and that kind of thing who have contacted me through my author profile saying, really, really loved your book. It really spoke to me. Thank you so much for, you know, um, including LGBT characters, not just like, you know, side characters, but as actual protagonists and that kind of thing. And that's been so touching. It really, really has been. It's just, it's been really great. I found at Comic-Con itself, um, Surprisingly, it was more of a uh, a hetero following. Mm. <laughs> I had more of that there, um, which was also really great as well because um, it's always nice to bring in crowds of different orientations and um, race and that kind of thing. It's it was really humbling to see how many people could relate to the characters in my book. Uh, without having to be like, you know, schoolgirls or lesbians and that kind of thing. I mean, yes, like we identify with people beyond just like one thing that makes them unique. The the one thing that I always try to impress is that it's nice to have characters that do have that one thing that make them different than every other protagonist that we've seen. For example, in this case, uh, there's a lesbian relationship, correct, in, in Our Immaculate? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. 
have you, as a queer author, um, or even as just a queer man growing up in South Africa, did you ever find that you had access to queer literature? Now that I'm thinking, like, if sci-fi and fantasy and horror genres weren't readily accessible, was queer literature as well? I mean, definitely not at my high school. I, I went to um, school at a private Catholic um well, it was a private Catholic school, not similar to, well, sort of similar to Iron Immaculate, but not really. Um, and um, there you wouldn't find anything like that um, at all. Apparently now it's changed quite a bit and it's actually become quite a progressive school, which I'm very proud of. Um, but at the time it was the complete opposite. And um, during my honors year at varsity, where I started to kind of look into LGBTQIA fiction, just like trying to see where I would be able to find characters who I could relate to a little bit more than, say, Harry Potter. And that was when I was exposed to, you know, books like The Geography Club, then uh, Sarah Waters, all of her novels like Fingersmith, uh, Tipping the Velvet, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was really just during varsity when I started to explore the LGBT side of literature a little bit more. Yeah, I know that for me personally, like, I feel like a lot of my identity or piecing together who I am came from things like literature and film. Because I grew up in, in rural Connecticut, and I just I didn't have access that I was aware of. You know, even now looking back at 33, I don't know that I had the exposure to someone like me in literature or film. And I had to actively seek those things out. And I remember like being in Barnes and Noble and just like so awkwardly tiptoeing over to that section of where the, the queer literature was and just feeling so uncomfortable in my skin, but yet so curious to wanting to crack open the book, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's just like, you're sweating, hoping that like, you know, uh, a shop attendant isn't going to walk past and like see you and you're like, Oh my God, I'm mortified. Um, and then also like if you ever if you were brave enough to actually purchase a book and it's like you go up to the cash register and you're like please don't know what this title is like just yes. that, like you know and every interaction just gets magnified by the awkwardness of it because at least for me that was that was the case oh completely that is like the 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 queer person's pilgrimage i suppose <laughs> that one needs time to take and the one of the first steps before visiting a, a gay club, I suppose, would be going to a bookstore and having the courage to pick up a book and actually buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With uh, with fiction specifically, you know, you're not going to find like a romance novel cover on it. It's not like necessarily two men or two women or, you know, in like some steamy pose. Not always, but it might be maybe some skinfully clad boy or something. But uh, yeah. Generally, they're disguisable covers, whereas like something like a film or even like a magazine isn't so much. So like at least you have yes. a little bit of anonymity there. But yeah, definitely the fear or the trepidation of being like, oh, my God, please don't discover who I am before I even know who I am. Yeah, it's, it's just something we all have to go through, I suppose. Yeah. At least we're not like that now, but it is something we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, the whole point here is to be moving into the space where younger generations don't have to have that fear of like walking into a section that is queer literature and feeling like, you know what, I'm trying to figure out who I am. And hopefully a book can help me do that and not have yeah. the, the stigma, the social stigma that comes with purchasing a book.
like that, you know? So it's awesome that we have authors like you that are generating the work for folks to, even if it is in things like sci-fi and fantasy and horror, which I will iterate many a time and say are valid in their space, because it's like sometimes you need that semi-removal from the world you know in order to gain perspective on things. Absolutely. You know, there's more to escapism than just escaping. We we can learn a lot from kind of looking at things from an objective point of view, uh, looking at things through a foreign lens. And one thing that I wanted to uh, bring back up, Jason, that you had said earlier is like in literature and film in the past, we, we have seen like, you know, queer characters or um, characters of color that are introduced, but they're usually secondary or tertiary, or sometimes uh, I'll even argue background filler, where yeah. it's just like, hey, look, uh, this is a diverse world, even if it is one that is removed from our own. But yet you always find that the social dynamic of this world transcends into that one, even though it's supposed to be slightly different. Has that been your experience? Have you found that like more often than not, like queer characters specifically are kind of used as an instrument as opposed to leading their own stories? Oh, absolutely. And you, you get that a lot with... Um... YA. So in this segment, Jason references YA. Court, can you please tell everyone what YA stands for? Young adult. Yes. So this is referencing young adult literature, which would include things like The Hunger Games, Divergent, and... Maze Runner? And The Maze Runner, exactly. People are starting to realize that there's more to gay characters or queer characters and characters of color than the fact that they're queer or people of color. (laughs) And it's... It boggles my mind that this is a sudden realization for people and that kind of thing, but I'm happy that people are slowly starting to realize this and are coming to terms with it, especially in TV shows like, say, Riverdale, for example, or books, um, especially in the YA scene. I think the YA scene is very important uh, to have this kind of transformation exist within, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, because... Representation at the end of the day is very important and um, being able to create one's identity. And we can do that with the help of, say, films and novels. Representation to me is super important, you know, especially when you are bringing a character of minority into the greater fold of things, you know. But it's like bringing our experience as individuals, because not every queer person is created equal in the way that our experience is the same. So when you create characters that are representative of their experience, of their community, it's more than just that one thing that defines them for obvious reasons. But there's, it's like moving past the coming out story, for example. It's just like there's so much more to the queer experience or for me, the gay male experience that is beyond the coming out story the coming out is just the beginning it's literally the opening of the door of the closet and then everything else that comes with it for example like a friend of mine and i are currently exploring spirituality in the queer community as far as we're writing a script related to that because i think that is another valid experience that queer people go through is that major organized religions generally don't hold love for queer people because it's considered something that is the antithesis of you know their religion so it's yeah it's, it's that removal or the rejection of something and then trying to find how you connect to a spirit you know in the greater scheme of things it's 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 navigating that space you know so that too is another area that could be explored through things like 
film and literature. Absolutely. And it's a very fascinating topic, um, the whole like spirituality thing. I mean, you would assume or that um, a queer person would be either agnostic or an atheist, um, purely because, like you were saying, very few, if not all religions that are very much um, against the idea of homosexuality. So it is always very interesting to to find people who are not only spiritual within the gay community or the queer community, but uh, Christian as well. I know this is going to probably sound quite bad and that kind of thing, but to be honest, I I would love to never read another coming out tale ever again. I because you, you find <laughs> oh good okay good good because uh, I thought I was going to sound like a. Um, bit of an asshole saying that sorry i just swore but no. um, <laughs> look you're allowed to swear like that's the thing is like uh don't feel as if you need to censor yourself in any capacity thank you thanks Mary. Yeah. but yeah it's just i mean you've probably seen it as well you you find it a lot um in tv shows especially like um, targeting the ya market where you'll have like the straight characters who seem to always be the protagonists of the show, whose main stories uh, always revolve around like solving a murder mystery or being targeted by a stalker and so on and so forth. Uh, but for the queer characters who, as we had already discussed, like nine times out of 10 are the side characters, their, their stories always seem to revolve around coming out to their parents who either accept or reject them for who they are. And then that's that. Right. And, I mean, like, I'm not taking away the importance of coming out stories because, I mean, they are very, very important. I mean, it gives people courage. It, it, um, it, it helps people to, to kind of um, give them that strength to come out, you know, in real life and that kind of thing. But there is just so much more to be done with minority characters in literature and in film and TV. I mean, like, have them track down a serial killer or end a zombie apocalypse or, I don't know, pit them against an ancient blood cult um, who are trying to bring an abominable, like, horror into our dimension, like in Our Immaculate. But just, like, I don't know, people seem to kind of overlook queer characters and characters of color and uh, when it comes to their storylines, and they don't give their stories depth. And the thing is, is that the market is so saturated with stories about hetero characters in space or fighting demons and exploring new worlds and that kind of thing. There's just so much to play with. And I think, like, finally people are, I mean, we've discussed this already, but, like, people are starting to realize this and they're starting to move away from that age-old kind of structure of, uh, you know, you know, having the, the gay character's story revolve around his gayness and actually look at this, this character through a more human lens. Yeah. And the other thing is like, um, well, one, when I, when I, I'm just going to jump back and piggyback what you're talking about as far as like coming out stories, I'm, yeah. I guess I'm over the gay white, male coming out story because there's there's other coming out stories that i'm actually interested in it's just that yeah. one specifically that i'm like okay one i've lived it but two it's just that has become the common storyline that we see when when you have a queer character represented or 
I'm going to say a gay character represented in in modern media. It's usually the straight white, uh, sorry, the straight white man, the gay white man. And it's it's like that is that is the common lens through which these things are presented. And it's like there's so much more to that that I want to see. Like, tell me about what it's like to be an African-American man coming out, you know, like that is going to have a different look, feel and story to it than yeah. a gay white man, you know. So Yeah, it's very true. And even, or even a trans female or trans male, like those stories are going to be different than, than the ones that we have had a, a pretty solid diet on thus far. And, and it is especially, and it's not to say that I'm done with the, the gay white male narrative. It's just that we have touched upon the introduction. Now it's time to yeah. go further. You know, it's, it's, and I, I feel like there's this mentality that it's like, Oh, well, the biggest turtle is just coming out of the closet. And it's like, no, that's again, only the first step. You know, it's, it's then coming out of the closet and all of the things that come out with you, you know, in the way that it's like, maybe for me, it's been like the shame that I've built up around being gay and it's dealing with that yeah. in sometimes everyday spaces where it's just like I feel uncomfortable and why is that is that because society has told me that the way that I am is wrong or taboo or unacceptable and I'm trying to deconstruct and deprogram that thought process so that I can find my own sense of identity like there's so much that goes beyond like once people know that information about you it's then how do you and they process it together? And where do those yeah. things intersect? You know, there are just so many more stories to tell. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So what do you think is the role of the author as far as like handling these? And I'm going to say like your own specific story. So not necessarily not writing for someone else's voice, but writing for your own voice as an author of minority uh what do you think is the level of responsibility in that or do you just kind of stick to your experience and tell the story that you want to tell you know i would say the role of the author is similar to you know the same role that were uh, that film and literature have in uh in terms of representation and identity and that kind of thing like the, the more books that we have with genuine and authentic diverse characters, uh, the more eyes we open to minorities being represented in those novels. And then of course, with that, more of a, uh, we create more of an awareness and an understanding, um, that will follow because of this representation and, and that kind of thing. But I would say, you know, when it came to our immaculate, I am not an 18 year old school girl. <laughs> I have never been an 18 year old school girl who is into other girls and that kind of thing. I might be in my next life, but you know, who knows? <laughs> the, the point is, is that, um, Delphi and Electra, who are my two protagonists are, are queer characters. And I didn't want to write them as queer characters just for the sake of being able to call our immaculate, a diverse novel. Um, I did it because that's how the characters presented themselves to me throughout the course of mapping the novel and then editing it and that kind of thing. Um, so when the characters themselves let me get to know them uh, a little bit better and open themselves up to me, I know that sounds weird, um, but that's just how it works. These characters uh, literally appear in my head and then they, they tell themselves about me. They, they tell me their stories. Um, 
story. They, they, yeah, they tell me their stories. Um, I, when they did that, I, I did my best to do my research and to ask, you, you know, the right questions and just, just try to be sure that I wrote them as genuinely as possible. Um, because at the end of the day, representation is important and, you, if you're going to, to include characters that are very, very different from you, you need to be cognizant of where you are coming from and where your characters are coming from. And you've got to get onto the same level as them and see, see things through their eyes and map out the story in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, just you, you have to be very sensitive with dealing with issues. Or characters that are uh, that are not like you. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's creating the character to be human first, and then you know sometimes the things that make them unique inform the person that they are. It's it's all that complicated conundrum of being human. You know, absolutely. I mean, there is just so much more to us than like our sexuality or our race or, you know, even our creed and that kind of thing, mm. because we're defined by many, many, many things. And yeah, the, if you say, for example, you, you just decided for the sake of it, you were just going to include a character of color. You were going to include a queer character just to make your book diverse. I mean, you would run the risk of not only making the characters fall into stereotypes or be regarded as stock characters, but the thing is, is that it would actually have the complete opposite effect. And I don't know, it just, they would come across as like not only poorly thought through characters, but as uh, just instruments, really. Yeah, exactly. And would do more damage than, than, uh, educate if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it, it's it's not a matter of taking off a box to say that it's one thing, but actually approaching it with care and sensitivity and respect. I would say is probably the most important thing in in that it's it's not just making somebody a person of color or making somebody a queer person just for the sake of saying, oh yeah, my book represents diversity and inclusion. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's about like, how do these stories, like, that's the thing is like, I always feel like when these characters are involved, they should somehow intrinsically affect the story. That's why I do sometimes have an issue with a character who is queer or a person of color, um, that is secondary or tertiary and they don't have any real connection to the story. You know, it just feels like that yeah. is, is the literary way of being like, oh, I have a friend of a friend who. Yeah. You know, basically, they're just there for the sake of it. Yeah. Where can we find uh, a copy of Our Immaculate? You'll be able to find it on the Barnes and Noble uh, website at Amazon. And um, you will also be able to find it on the Sarah Blues uh, online store. And then uh, for my South Africans, um, you'll be able to find it at various bookstores around the country. Um and as well as uh, as well as at conventions and that kind of things so like Comic Con, Icon, uh, Geek Fest, and the like. Excellent. Everywhere you will be going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to go to Flame Con one day in New York. I hear great things about that. Oh my gosh, that would be. I haven't done myself yet, but like next really? year I have to go. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think it was two weekends before Comic Con. I think it was Flame Con then Drag Con. Like. 
RuPaul's Drag Con and then Comic Con. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you better get gay up in here. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely on my radar of, of things to check out. So you oh, have absolutely. to come. You have to come and bring bring your work for sure. Yes, absolutely. If I come, will you take me to go watch Hamilton? Of course. If we can get tickets, we're probably going to have to play the lottery, but I would love to. That is my, my, my dream right there is to go watch Hamilton live. Oh, I love that musical so much. Um, yes. It's, I've only, I've only listened to the soundtrack, but it is infectious and so good. And Jason, I wanted to thank you so much for your time and for, you know, sharing your perspective and your work. And, um, you know, I can only encourage our listeners to go and pick up not only a copy of Our Immaculate, but of all the work that Sarah Blue publishes. So, And thank you so very much for having me on your podcast. I'm sorry if I rambled like a, a moron. <laughs> no, most of it. I very much appreciate it. And, and hopefully we can find something. I'm sure we can find something else to talk about to have you back on. So. Perfect. I would love that. Well, thank you, Jason. Much appreciated. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. For an audio preview of Into the Dark and Our Immaculate, along with all the books mentioned in this series, you can find them on Typed Out's website at www.typedout.co. And if you're wondering what happened to Kellen, she unfortunately had to leave the call early. But don't worry, she will be back in the next segment of the Sarah Blue series when we talk with Kellen and fantasy author Nicola Millen. On next week's episode, I am joined by none other than Mr. Queer Cosmos himself, Colin Bedell. Together, Colin and I discussed the Zodiac, as well as the release of his new book, A Little Bit of Astrology, which goes on sale today. I would like to thank my co-host for this week's episode, Courtney Antonioli, as well as Kellen Garrity and Jason Hess of Sarah Blue. For more of Courtney's content, you can find her on YouTube on her Golden Girls-inspired channel, Stay Golden. Yes, honey. If you enjoy listening along, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify, And don't forget to leave a rating. This has been a Typed Out production. I'm your host, Nick Polifrone, and I will see you next week.